So we are in Romans chapter 15. We're in verse, this is where we finished up, verse 7. Therefore receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. That's where I ended the message two weeks ago. Now this is not a command to just tolerate another brother or sister in Christ. It is a command to embrace them as a fellow member of the body of Christ, to enjoy fellowship with them, to love them despite the fact that they may be less mature in their Christian walk or their understanding of Christian liberty here in the context. But, but this principle, to receive one another as Christ received us, it applies to other things than the immediate context. Other things that we may not like about a fellow Christian, we must still receive them as co-heirs of the grace of God. There's a scripture I've often thought of in Genesis chapter 13 in verse 7. When you read about the strife between the herdsmen of Abraham and his livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And the scripture says the Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So what did Abraham do? The strife arose between his herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. He said to Lot, please, let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. And then I never forget these words. For we are all brethren. Those four words, if we would just think about that in the situations where we find ourselves maybe at odds with somebody, maybe some type of division beginning, whatever it is, we be brethren. That means a lot, right? And that ought to put an end to a lot of things before they even begin. So how does God receive glory when we receive one another? Because it demonstrates a Christ-like humility and a Christ-like love who welcomed the, the weak and the strong and, and received everyone. As a matter of fact, he said, whoever will come unto me, I will in no ways what cast out. And that tells us something about the heart of Jesus who came for all sinners. He came for all sinners. No one would he cast out. However, priority was given to Israel. Jesus came as the, the, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, a servant to the descendants of Abraham, the text says here, and, and that would, would mean the circumcision. So you read on here in Romans chapter 15, now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. That's the Jew, for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to, to the fathers. If you go back to verse 3 here in this, in this chapter. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. They had a really not a, 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 an informed conscience. And we ought not to please ourselves, 
Let each, each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Verse 8 now. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant. Servant. Diakonos is the word to the Jew. And that word servant, we pointed this out before. We think of the deacons in the church. The, the noun, diakonos, was used of somebody who waited on tables and performed a, a variety of other tasks. Some were menial, some were, were more significant, but all were necessary. But the principle that I want you to see here is that servants do not please themselves. That's what it, what it said in verse 3 that we read and onward. They don't please themselves. They seek to please their master, whoever is over them. And what was the desire of Jesus? He says, I always do those things that what? Please my father. So even in his incarnation, his condescension, he always wanted to please the father in everything. And that's what servants do. Now, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the circumcision, are Jews. They're Jews. That is their nationality. The religion we call Judaism. The Gentiles who, who came to embrace Judaism didn't make them Jewish in that day, in the Old Testament and onward. They remained proselytes to Judaism. Jews who come to Christ, they don't lose their nationality. They're still Jewish, but they become Christians. They are believers in the Messiah. And the Bible says that those Jews, we call the Messianic Jews who come to faith in Jesus Christ, they are in the New Testament called the Israel of God. Galatians 6.15, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but a new creation, right? God makes all things new. And if you've come to Christ, you're a new creature. And then it says in verse 16, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God is not the church. In this context, the Israel of God is believers who came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So here's the question. Did Jesus restrict his mission, for the most part, to Jews only? And the answer is yes, he did. Did Jesus foretell a greater mission, including Gentiles? Yes, he did. In John chapter 10, verse 15. John 10, 15. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The sheep there were those in Israel who, who believed, who came to Christ. But notice what he says in verse 16. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, the fold of Israel. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. 
This is one of a limited number of sayings by Jesus recorded in the Gospels that clearly refers to the future mission of the exalted Lord who would be carried out, which would be carried out by his disciples in reaching the Gentiles. Paul, we know, was sent by God as an apostle. The word apostle means sent one. So he was sent by God to whom primarily? The Gentiles. Peter was an apostle. He was a sent one. He was sent to the Jews. Galatians 2.8, Paul says this. He who worked effectively in Peter for his apostleship to the circumcised, the Jews, also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And you see Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost and all of these Jews from all over, uh, they got saved. And it was a tremendous blessing. And great numbers were added to the church. But Paul, in terms of, of reaching people, far exceeded the, the number that, P, that Peter reached among the Jews. But I remind you of what, 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 what Paul wrote in verse chapter 1, verse 16. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And I hope that none of us in this room are ashamed. There's nothing to be ashamed about. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because he says it is the dunamis power. We get our word dynamite from that. The gospel is dynamite. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. For the Jew first, he says, that was the priority but also for the Greek. Now, this may, this may come as somewhat of a surprise to you, but Jesus actually commanded his disciples not to preach to the Gentiles. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out and he commanded them, commanded them, saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was their specific mission, to reach those Jews, many of whom were expecting the Messiah to come. As a matter of fact, and we'll look at these later on, the only two G G Gentiles Jesus mentored, mentored to, that we have a, a, a written account of here, were the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28, and the Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 17, and Luke 7, 1 through 10. So we have those accounts, and as I said, we'll take a look at them. So he came, Jesus, as the long-awaited Messiah, and his priority was, the scripture says here, to bear witness as a servant of God to the truth of God to the Jews. Verse 8, he came as a servant to please the Father, to bear witness to the truth of God, to the circumcision, to the Jews. The Bible says a lot about truth, does it not? And every word of the Bible is true, beginning with the very first verse, right on through to the last verse of Scripture. Every word of God 
is true. And Jesus himself was truth personified. You know the verse, John 1.14, the word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us and we beheld his what? His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was full of grace and he was full of truth. In John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, and the idea here is continue to believe in him, because many fell away. Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you will know what? The truth, and the truth will set you free. I mean, that I've shared this so many times with you. Those were the words that God used to get my heart when I was yet unsaved. And I sat in a, in a classroom in Wilkes College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, probability calculus and statistics, really thrilling at night. And I was bored. And I looked up, it was an old church building, and it had that Bible verse. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And oh, I was I was searching. I was I was really hungry for truth. Well, forget about the class. That's all I could think about. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Listen, if you're involved in some kind of deception, some kind of a bondage, whatever it might be, the only thing that can set you free is the truth, the truth of God's word. You will set to know the truth and the truth will make you free. But now you seek to kill me, he says in verse 40 of John 8. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. But because I tell you the truth, verse 45, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? So over and over, one, two, three, four, five times in John chapter 8, 31 through 45, he mentions the word truth. I have told you the truth. I have told you the truth. Why, are, why will you not believe me? You know, in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, and we all know this, well, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father, but accept or accept through me. Now, it's one thing to say, I speak the truth. It's entirely another thing to say, I am the truth. That claims means that he is the source of all truth and he is the standard by which all things are to be judged as either true or false. Listen, we don't need someone's political opinions. We don't need someone's philosophical speculations. If we want to know what the truth is, it's what God has spoken. It's what God has spoken in his word. Now, no, no human being could make the claim that Jesus did. I am the truth. That claim could only be made by a divine being who knows all things. 
And in Christ was all the wisdom, really, of God bodily personified. He was a divine being, as it says in Colossians 2.16. In him, in Jesus, dwelt all the fullness, the pleroma, the entirety of God bodily. Try to wrap your head around that. In Jesus, this, this carpenter's son from Nazareth, dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. But the glory was veiled. You know, Jesus stood before Pilate, and Pilate said to him at this little mock trial, are you, are you a king then? Because that's one of the charges they wanted to try to get on Jesus. He was claiming to be king, and that would cause a lot of problems with, with Rome and Caesar and so forth. Are, are you a king? And Jesus answered, you said rightly, I am a king. For this cause I was born. For this reason I came into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. That's, that's significant. Everyone who is of the truth, everyone who desires the truth, will hear my voice. Jesus often, the Bible often says, he who had an ears to hear what? Let him hear. Let him hear. So Jesus was a servant of God to the circumcision to bear witness of the truth. But what is the, what is the, what do we know from the record? They rejected it. The circumcision rejected it. The Jews rejected it. He came unto his own, the Bible says, meaning his own people, the Jews, but his own did not receive him. That's John 1, 12. And they did that willingly. They, they were not predestinated to reject it. They did it willingly. John 5, 39 says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they were, boy, they knew the scriptures. They were quick to bring the scriptures up. And he says, And they are that which testify of me. They bear record of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. The Greek is even stronger. It's very emphatic. You do not will to come to me so that you can have eternal life. Like so many other people in this world, they're not willing to come to Christ. Neither were the Jews of that day for the most part. What, what was the problem that they had with Jesus? I mean, he went everywhere doing good, right? That's what the Bible says. Healing people, doing things, as Nicodemus says, only, only someone from God could do. Speaking like no man ever spoke. Having compassion on multitudes. Why, why did they reject him and treat him the way that they did? I'll tell you why. Because he didn't meet their expectations. I can tell you people who I've talked to over the course of years who just you know wanted nothing to do with Christianity. You know, you know, some of them said to me, I tried that and it didn't work. I didn't meet my expectations of what God should be like and how he should deal with me. I tried that and it didn't work. 
He didn't meet their expectations. Furthermore, he revealed the hypocrisy of their leaders in Israel. And they were jealous of him because flocks of people were, were following him. Another reason is he spoke of his kingdom as not of this world. And they wanted a kingdom in the here and now, which, by the way, is coming. That kingdom is coming on God's schedule. God is faithful to his word. But herein was the problem. They failed to see that his ministry was to be carried out in two parts. In his first coming, he was to die for the sins of the people. Isaiah 53. In his second coming, he was to restore the Jewish kingdom. I shouldn't even say restore. You should build something entirely new, much more glorious. But in his first coming, Jesus focused on ministry in and to Israel before its fruits could be made available beyond Israel, the fruits of salvation. So looking further on here, the second stated purpose in verse 8 of Christ's coming is to confirm the promises made to the fathers, to bear witness to the truth, and then to confirm the promises made to the fathers. These were the Jewish patriarchs. Jesus came in response to all of the Old Testament prophecies, all of the Old Testament promises, and he fulfilled them, and he carried them out. And this refers to God's faithfulness to the promises contained in the unconditional covenants that he made with Israel. Ephesians 2.11 says this. This is a Gentile crowd here in Ephesus. Remember, therefore, that you once were Gentiles in the flesh, that's your natural state, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. That's how the Jews viewed them, the uncircumcised. But here's what he said. At that time, when you were lost, you were without Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were not the sons and daughters of Abraham by faith. But he says this, you were strangers from the covenant of promises. That's what is referred to in verse 8 here. Having no hope and without God in this world. That's the natural state of every man. The covenant of promises included the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, Palestinian covenant, what we call the land covenant, and the new covenant. And by the way, you really do not know your Bible unless you know those covenants. You really should know and have a thorough understanding of the covenants that God made with Abraham, David, the Palestinian covenant, and the new covenant. God promised that Abraham's na name would be great, that he would have a land, and a seed would have a land, his seed would have a land, and that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. That's us, right? Part of it. He promised David that a ruler would sit on his throne forever. 2 Samuel 7. He promised Israel that one day, as hard as they had been for God for so long a time, that one day his law would be written in their hearts, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of their hearts. 
and he would take away all their sin. Romans 11.27 speaks about this. Paul says the deliverer will come from Zion. He will come again to Jerusalem and he will turn ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them. This is the new covenant that God will make with Israel when I take away their sins. Wow. What, I mean, that's going to be amazing. It's yet future. Hebrews 11.39 says this in that great chapter of, the, of faith. And all of these, the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, having obtained a good testimony, how? Through faith, through believing, did not receive the promises. Did not receive. How much, how much land did Abraham actually inherit? How much of a seed did he actually see in his lifetime? They didn't see the fulfillment of the promises. But they had faith that God would fulfill them. Eventually, he would do it. They had a confident expectation that God would fulfill all of his promises. And listen, this is the key. They lived and died holding firm to the belief that God cannot lie. That he will make good on his word. And that was the anchor of their soul in a very difficult world. They had, listen to me, they had joy, peace, and hope in believing, in believing. And God so loved the world, not just the Jews, that Jesus also came so that the Gentile nations could be saved. Verse 9 Romans 15, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And we'll get to those scriptures. Thank God for his mercy. Mercy and grace are different, but they're theologically connected. Sinners deserve God's wrath for violating his laws. Do you agree? Sinners deserve God's wrath, punishment for violating his laws. As the creator of all things, he has the sovereign right to make laws and to enforce the penalty for violating those laws. The ultimate punishment is eternal punishment. It's separation from God forever in hell for those who know not Christ. So mercy is not getting the wrath we deserve as sinners. That's what mercy is. It's not getting what we deserve because God provided a substitute who, listen to me, who took the wrath of God in our behalf. Now, I want to tell you this morning that God the Father showed no mercy on Jesus. It pleased the Father to bruise him and to make him an offering for our sin. He showed no mercy on the Son so that any sinner could be received by receiving his offer of free grace, the gift of salvation, which is the complete forgiveness of sin in Christ. He showed no mercy to his son so that he could have mercy on all. That's beautiful. 
Schaefer said this, mercy is that in God which is duly provided for the need of sinful man. God is rich in mercy, the Bible says. Why is he rich in mercy? Because he is love. People who don't love don't have any mercy. And because God is love, he by mercy provided for the, the, the need of sinful man. But mercy didn't save man. Grace is that in him, God, which acts freely to save because all of the demands of his holiness have been satisfied by his son. We couldn't satisfy it. We're, we're, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. And that is why God had to make put upon him the iniquity of us all. That is why he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Alleluia. Praise God. No one in this room is worthy of the mercy of God. No one in this room is worthy of the grace of God. And no one outside this room is worthy of the mercy or the grace of God. But he is rich in mercy. And his grace is free. And it's abundant. So Paul says the Old, the Old Testament scriptures foretold this grace that would be shown to the Gentiles. Paul says it is written. And then he gives some quotes here. Romans 15, latter part, 9b, comes from Psalm 1849. For this reason, I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And actually, if you read Psalm 18, beginning in verse 47, I want to read a little bit more. It says this, it is God who avenges me. David is writing now. Remember, he was pursued by Saul. He had many enemies and subdues the people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. I tell you, one of your greatest enemies is yourself, right? This flesh. You also lift me up, up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me, David said, from the violent man. And in verse 49, therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles. And sing praises to your name. That is what Paul is citing here in Romans 15, 9. But if you would go back and you look at verse 43 of Psalm 18, this is beautiful. He says, you have delivered me from the strivings of the people. You have made me the head of the nations. A people have who I have not known will serve me. Wow. The ultimate fulfillment of this is in the millennial kingdom under Christ's rule. It's a far-reaching promise to the greater son of David. Zechariah 14.8 says, In that day, the living waters will go from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day, there will be one Lord and his name one. Amen. Lord of lords and King of kings, Lord over all the earth in that day. Boy, what a day that will be, right? Then Paul quotes in Romans 15.10 from Deuteronomy 32.43. Again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. I think some of the 
like the ESV, they have rejoice you heavens because they're following the Septuagint there rather than the Masoretic text. Romans 15.11 comes from Psalm 117 in verse 1. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all ye peoples. Oh, praise the Lord, all you nations. Praise him, all ye people, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise ye the Lord. Amen, right? Amen. Romans 15, 12 then comes from Isaiah 11, 1 and verse 10. And that's cited in Romans 15, 12. Isaiah says there will be a root of Jesse. Isaiah 11, 1 says there will come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. A ruler will come forth from Jesse. And then in verse 10, and he will rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles will hope. Now, if you went back and looked at that, the Masoretic text, it says this, Isaiah 11.10. And in that day there will be a root of Jesse who will stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting shall be glorious. That's a little different because Paul's citing the Septuagint there again. He didn't have any problem with that. Paul appealed, interesting in these scriptures, right? Paul appealed to Moses, the lawgiver, David, the greatest king of Israel, and Isaiah, the great prophet, when speaking of Gentile salvations. That's a very strong witness, right? Moses, David, Isaiah. That's the two or three witnesses. Let it let every every truth be established. God desired to save the Gentiles. And Jesus had some interaction with Gentiles. The centurion's son. Turn to Matthew chapter 8. This is a beautiful story. Just let it speak for itself because it's designed to, to build faith. Bring out your faith. Verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, which was his hometown, there alongside the Sea of Galilee, a centurion came to him pleading with him. Notice the words, pleading with him. Persistence. Saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. He had compassion. The centurion answered and he said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Only just, just say a word right now, right here, right now. Say a word and my servant will be healed. I believe you can do that. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes to another, come. And he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. I'm just a mere man. And I can say, I can give orders to certain people. And they're going to follow those orders. So what's he saying? You're no mere man. You have much greater authority than me. Just say it. Just say it. Just speak the words. And my servant will be healed. Look what Jesus, when he heard it, he marveled. And he said to those who followed them, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. What a rebuke. What a rebuke. Not even among all the people who should have known better. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jews and Gentiles, right? 
but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. And as you have believed, so let it be done to you. And his servant was healed that same hour. This is the Gentile with great faith. And then you have the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Another Gentile. So Jesus went from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan from that region cried out to him saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Jesus was silent. He answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him saying, because they were full of compassion, Send her away, for she, she's bothering us. She cries after us. But he answered and he says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, I mean, Jesus indifferent. He's stating the purpose for which he came. His primary purpose in coming was for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, she could have just walked away, right? Man, this is a closed door. He's not everything I, I thought he was. Whatever she was running through her mind, she could have thought that. What'd she do? She came and worshipped him. That means she fell down at his feet. And she said, here it is. You ever reach this place in prayer? Lord, help me. How was Martin Luther at the time of the Reformation facing the greatest authorities on earth, the power of the church and the state? All he could pray was, God send help. Lord, help me. Listen, your prayers don't have to be couched in eloquent language. I mean, you should pray intelligently. Lord, help me. He answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. All right, Jews. They saw the Gentiles as dogs. She said, true, Lord. That's true. But Lord, even the little dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. They see a provision there. Wow, what did Jesus say? He said, oh woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed that very night. Just like with the centurion. He said, I have not seen so great faith in all of Israel. Oh woman, great is your faith. You know, here's Mark 7, 26. Count, listen, look. Here's the key. She kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. She kept persistence in prayer. But Jesus said to her, notice, let the children be filled first. What's this? Jewish priority. And God gave the Jews priority because his desire 
for the Jews with that they would be in fulfillment to the to the covenant he made with Abraham, a blessing to the whole world. John 4.22, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, look, you don't know who you're worshiping. You worship, you know not what. For we know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. Praise God. Salvation is of the Jews, but salvation is not restricted to the Jews. We'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? We'd all be in trouble. Listen, Gentile salvation was not an afterthought in the mind of God. The Lord always had Gentile salvation compassion toward Gentiles in mind. Even in the Old Testament, we saw the scripture verses that pointed ahead. But in Luke 4.24, he said this, I surely say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country, right? He's not accepted by his own family. Sometimes if you become a, people become a Christian, the, the ones who reject him are their, their immediate household first and hardest. So Jesus said, no prophet is accepted in his own country other accounts among his own family and kin. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the day of Elijah. Many widows in Israel when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow who was not Jewish. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet. And none of them were cleansed, except Naaman, the, the, the Syrian. So God had compassion to the Gentiles. I want you to know that the fullness, though, the gathering of the Gentiles is not complete. God is still saving Jews. Small numbers. God is still saving Gentiles in greater numbers. One day this harvest of Gentiles will be complete. Rom, Rob Paul said in Romans eleven fifteen, I say then, they have stumbled that they should fall. Right? Have they stumbled that they should fall and not recover? The Jews? Certainly not. But through their fall, that's the fall of the, the Jewish nation, the rejection of Christ, through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So they rejected Christ. They fell in that respect, but it's not permanent. And God in the hardness, using the hardness of their heart, takes the gospel to the Gentiles so that these Gentiles would become saved and provoke Israel to jealousy. And we know one day there's going to be a great harvest when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. There's going to be a great harvest in Israel. So I want you to watch now as we close this out. Paul's prayer in verse 13. We touched on this before, but his, his benediction, it really is a benediction, a prayer and a blessing. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul addressed the subject of joy over two dozen times in his letters. Peace is even more frequently mentioned. Peace is an inner sense of well-being and wholeness. The Greek is equivalent to the Hebrew shalom, peace. 
First Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice, what? Always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, for me. It is God's will in Christ Jesus that we would rejoice always. That we would give thanks in everything. What is the foundation for Christian joy and peace? Paul says here, it's the will of God. Knowing that it's the will of God. Knowing that God is not unaware of the circumstances we find ourselves in. And he will never forsake us in trying times. It is God's will that we will experience difficulties in life. Sometimes intense difficulties and sorrows and loss. But we can have peace and joy in those times. Why? Because we know God is faithful. He will fulfill all his promises toward us. They are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. They are absolutely guaranteed even if there is no, no light in the darkness we see right now. We see through a glass dimly. One day we'll see face to face. So here, here's, here's a verse, okay? Now here's my challenge. How many here have difficulties? How many here have sorrows? How many here are going to have difficulties tomorrow or next week or next year? How many here are going to have difficulties for the rest of your life as long as you live? How many here are going to have loss? How many are here are going to have sorrows accompanied that accompany that loss? Sometimes really difficult losses, the loss of a child maybe. We don't know. Here's the verse. You better memorize it. You better, you better memorize it. Because someday you might need it. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Friends, that will carry you through. You might have to memorize scripture. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Tom, hold fast the confession of your hope. Don't waver because you know God is faithful. Listen, the other day I was listening. Yeah, there was just something that I was going through. It was very difficult at the moment. And I stopped and it. You know, you become a little anxious and, and I tuned things out a little as best as I could. And then playing on the radio. Playing on the radio. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh, Lord, my father. God, just remind me through that song of his faithfulness. Come, don't, don't be anxious. I am faithful. 
Hebrews 11, 35. Others were tortured in that chapter of faith, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourging, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were cut in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. You think you have it tough. And then it, then it adds this word, of whom the world was not worthy. Listen to me. Don't let it don't let it upset you. There is a great anti-Christian sentiment in this world that will only get worse and worse. But you know what? The world is not worthy of us. Our presence is the light of Christ in the world. And that's what they're rejecting. Not you, not me. They're rejecting God's authority. Of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Now listen to this. And all these, all those who suffered all these things, having attained a good testimony, witness through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. God was doing something that they did not understand in all of that. But they still believed. They still believed. And they longed for the day when they would see the fulfillment of all of his promises. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the Holy Spirit. Listen to me, don't miss this. Joy, peace, and abounding hope are the products of believing. Trusting God no matter what may come your way. That's what it says. They're the product of believing. Now listen to me, that level of faith takes time. We learn from trial after trial that God is with us and he will complete the good work that he began in us at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We learn from all things, Romans 8.28, collectively. That God works for good to those who love God and are called according to his promise. All of these things, in the end, we'll see how they worked for our good. But don't go to somebody who's suffering an incredible loss and say, oh, brother or sister, you know, God works in all things together for your good. Don't do that. That's not good what they're going through. But God takes it all, the whole of it all, and, and he weaves a, a beautiful mosaic that you can't see. You can't see. You look at one individual part, it does not look so good. But when you see the whole thing, it's beautiful. It's what God has done. Joylessness, a lack of peace, and hopelessness, listen to me, are symptoms of faithlessness. 
A lack of joy, a lack of peace, and a lack of hope are symptoms of faithlessness. All of these come, Paul said, in believing. Faithlessness comes when we don't walk closely with God. Because we become emotionally and spiritually weak. And in that state, we become vulnerable to all kind of thoughts that fill our heart and mind rather than the promises of God's word and, and the certainty that he is with us and will never, ever leave us nor forsake. So Paul ends this chapter, actually, in verse 23, writing, Now may the God of peace be with you all. May the God who brings shalom, healing, wholeness, your body, mind, and spirit be with you all. Isaiah 26.3 That will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed, stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. And sometimes we end the verse there, but look at verse 4. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. You weak now? Where are you going to get your strength? I'm thank God for resources, right? Good books to read, good people who tell us they're praying for us. They give a word fitly spoken, you know, like pictures of gold and in frames of silver, you know, at the, at the right time. Thank God for all those things. But they are not your strength. Your husband is not your strength. He can help you. But he doesn't have ultimate strength. Why? Why? Because he gets weak too. Sometimes he needs strength. We all need it. Where are we going to get it? For in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. This is where we got to go, right? Listen, don't think you can muster up joy, hope, and peace on your own. Because you cannot. You can't do it. Listen, what he says, joy, peace, and abandoning hope are ours as we believe when we walk in the Spirit. Now may the joy of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Don't be faithless that you may abound in hope because you finally got your act together. You're going to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and go on. Know that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come from you. It comes from God, the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, all of those things. So here's what happens, practically speaking. You're in a mess emotionally. Whatever it is, you're doubting, whatever. Something wrong with your walk. Check your walk out with the Lord. That's the first place you start. It's not your husband. It's not your kids. It's not your wife. It's not the world all around you. It's you. It's your walk with God or the lack of a walk with God. And that's where you begin. Be ye filled controlled by the Holy Spirit of God.
And it begins with a prayer, simple prayer. God, you know what? I'm feeling a wreck because I, I'm doing this on my own. I need your strength. Or I'm doing this partially on my own and, and partially with your help. Now just abandon yourself to God. Just cast yourself at his feet. Like the woman who came and just bowed down and laid down before him and said, Lord, help me. He desires to give us all that we need, everything. He will not leave us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. So I ask you to commit the scripture to memory. Where was it? Where was it? Hebrews 10. 23, I don't expect you all to remember this just first time thrown out there. Some of you know it, but say it with me in closing. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God, thank you.